Welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkran. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Drew Thomases on his um, exciting new book, Guest is God, Pilgrimage, Tourism, and Making Paradise in India. Uh, this book is a, a very recent uh, 2019, late 2019 OUP publication. Drew, welcome to the program. Hey, Raj. Thanks for having me. Um, no problem. It's my pleasure. Um, very interesting book. Reminds me of a recent interview we did, actually, <laughs> insofar as it's a, it's centered around a pilgrimage site. Very different, um, very different data, very different argument. Maybe we'll do some comparison towards the end. But why don't you just tell us, um, what's your book about? What is this pilgrimage site that you're researching? Right. So the book is about Pushkar. Uh, Pushkar is a, for those who don't know, it's a small pilgrimage and tourist town in Rajasthan in northwestern India. Um, you know, on the map, you can see that it's a few hours uh, southwest of Jaipur. It's just uh, nine miles or so from Ajmer. But of course, it's so much more to the people who live there uh, and to the people who go there. So it's it's Brahma's abode, right? It's the place where the creator God chose to uh, chose, chose his home. Uh, and it's also the site of his most famous temple. I mean, for many people in Pushkar, it's believed to be the, the site of the only Brahma temple in the universe, though that is contested. Uh, but Pushkar is also the site of a sacred lake called Pushkaraj, which is believed to have kind of purifying and salvific powers. Uh, it's a place where locals would be happy to be reborn even as a pigeon. Uh, it's a town that kind of sees itself as a gathering place for the world's people. Uh, and in that sense, it's kind of it's this really interesting place because it's a town where it's a town that's wrapped up in its uniqueness that also really looks outward, looks toward uh, things in a global perspective. So the book is about Pushkar, but more specifically, it's about an observation made by people who live in Pushkar, uh, namely that their town is paradise. Uh, This is kind of the the way I started the research was I I made this simple observation, you know, that all these people in Pushkar, uh, most of them uh, from various walks of life, but especially people in the tourism and pilgrimage industry, talk about the uniqueness and wonder of Pushkar, that's it's heaven it's paradise. It's this wonderful place to be. Um, and from that basic observation, I made two more. Uh, the first is that paradise doesn't just exist out of nothing. It does, it's not just that paradise is, but rather that paradise has to be made and remade. Um, and that it's often made and remade with, you know, with words and deeds, basically. Um, and the second is that uh, this making of paradise, that uh, the making of the sacred space is one that actually happens alongside the works, the workings of uh, tourism and globalization, rather than uh, in spite of or despite them. So, the, the book is about Pushkar ostensibly, but it's really about the people in Pushkar and the way they make sense of uh, their town. The way they make sense of the fact that they're in this town that is quite small, the town of twenty thousand people, but it sees an influx of two million people every year. And, and the way that they make sense of that fact, the fact that it's uh, increasingly increasingly kind of a, a node of the globalized world, um, and how they make sense of their own living, their own ideas about being Hindu, uh, about what kind of Hinduism might look like uh, in the context of, of globalization, in the context of being the center, uh, and in the context of living in a world that's both really, really important for religion, but also that is undergirded by the tourism industry. Uh, there's so many fascinating themes there. Um, so in terms of your methodology, you are interviewing people. 
are people the sole source of research for this book? Yeah, so you know, I'm not really into books. <laughs> I'm into reading. <laughs> no, um, you know, you know the, the thing is, I, I find um, I teach this class at San Diego State called uh, Writing on Religion, and specifically, it's about uh, it's about ethnographic field methods. And uh, what I tell my students in the beginning is that you'll find that ethnography, or rather, that the way that someone decides to do work, the way they do it, is based on disposition. Uh, I've never been really one to sit in a library. Uh, to work through an archive, you know, with the, the kind of dark room with lots of wood and a globe somewhere. It's never really been my thing. I don't find that I like it or that I'm particularly good at it. But it turns out that wandering around and talking to people is something I really, truly enjoy doing. Uh, and so dispositionally, ethnography always kind of suited me. Uh, and I didn't know this, of course, until I really got to India and started, uh, you know, developing my chops at it. But yeah, this this research is based largely on chatting with people. Uh, in my in the introduction, I talk about my methods as being kind of walking around and hanging out, right? So there are, all, there are all of these complicated ethnographic methods that a person could pursue, but really what I'm doing here is I'm walking around, often very slowly throughout this pilgrimage town, uh, kind of waiting for people to say hi to me. Uh, and, I, and it happens to be a tourist town where there are a lot of white folks, and I happen to be a, a white guy who at the time had a mustache and uh, spoke Hindi, and people would just say, hey, you, and I would share chai and then sit with them. And uh, sometimes that yielded really amazing relationships, and sometimes that relationship would fizzle out within five minutes. Uh, but yeah, so I, I walk around, I chat with people. Uh, the beginning of the research was such that I would have very, very casual conversations with people. I introduced myself as someone who's interested in religion, interested in Pushkar, or interested in Brahma, uh, and, uh, and see, where that, see kind of where that took me. Uh, the beginning of the research really involved just chatting with people about whatever they wanted to chat about. And then at some point within a handful of months, I get, I began to understand what my project was even about because, you know, honestly, in the beginning, when, when you're uh, doing ethnographic field work, you don't actually know what's important to you and you don't know what's important to the people you're talking to. So it takes months to develop that. Uh, and then after a while, I started to uh, know what I wanted the book to be about, the project to be about. And I started conducting interviews uh, and, you know, the interviews range in length, but broadly, we're talking about talking to someone for about 20 minutes to half an hour about whatever it is they want to talk about, uh, guided in some small way by my questions. But uh, this, this, this for me works uh, dispositionally. I like doing it. It's fun and yields interesting results. Part of what I love about ethnography is that in a certain, in a certain sense, it's a collaborative effort insofar as you're trying to talk about things you think are interesting, but they have to be interesting to other people as well. Uh, if you go to an ethnographic site and say, hey, I want to talk about this, and they say, no, I don't want to talk about that. That's boring or stupid. Well, then you don't have a project, right? And so you have to actually, you have this, this really interesting oscillation between what you think is worth writing about and what other people think is worth talking about. Uh, and if you find that that, that kind of interesting place in the middle you could i think it can yield really interesting stuff that's um that's <laughs> that's uh, that resonates a great deal um in in a twofold sense um mm -hmm. i've mentioned probably a half a dozen times on this podcast that had i known one can get credit for learning through conversation there's no way i would have uh, been a textualist uh for me 
turning off the 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 ongoing armchair ethnography and being head down that was school that was study that was what i needed to do to succeed in school and so i ended up uh, fascinated by ancient Sanskrit texts, mm. um, but more and more, you know, I may sign up for your 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 um, ethnography class so I can gain <laughs> some actual <laughs> training in this. But I'm I'm really and truly um, I'm working on um, I'm working out some ideas for uh, a third book, and it's a textual book. But I'm really and truly itching to combine <laughs> this way of life and what I do at the academy and do an actual ethnographic project. Um, that really resonates. The other thing that really resonates is that the dialectic, um, mm. this idea that the categories are ours as scholars of religion, but the, mm. the, the dialectic between um, the ways in which we study, what we study, how we study, mm. and the actual contours of the data. Mm. Uh, nowhere in South Asia is it more imperative, um, in my view, to actually be guided by the data before we start theorizing, before we start questioning. I never have a research question when I come to a text. I come to a text and I let the text signal to me what's really important to the text. And from there, I'm like, well, you know, this whole, maybe there is something to be said about, you know, ethics of violence. Cause you know, there's this really fascinating story about um, a, a, a violent uh, Brahmana, for example. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I like that. I like that you, you sit, you chat, you learn about what's important to folks. And then at some point you kind of dovetail that with something that you're interested in learning more about. Uh, and I will say there's, uh, there is, um, um, that texture runs through the book. So, uh, well, so, I, so, I, so then, I actually, I actually did what I said. That's great. That's good to hear. Yeah. Well, well and, 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 and every now and then you actually, um, you include you include unabridged excerpts like you you share the data of the experiences before you start interpreting them with your scholarship. Is that fair to say in the book? Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. Uh, and, you know, there's this there is this broad the, the broad question, uh, I think, for those in the ethnography kind of anthropology of South Asia, but really, I guess, more in, in kind of Hindu studies broadly uh, is kind of how do we interpret our data? in light of local categories, in light of what people say, but also in light of trying to have broader conversations. Uh, and so in a lot of ways, yeah, I, I definitely want people to speak for themselves using local categories uh, and using kind of local ways of knowing. I, I think that that's a, something that we've tried to pursue in the anthropology of South Asia and Hindu studies or anthropology of Hindu studies broadly for a bit. Uh, and then what I'm also trying to add to that is some kind of uh, theoretical language to create conversation partners outside of the field. Uh, and, and I'm not sure how successful I am at that. That's hard. Um, I mean, it's all hard, right? But uh, the, the the deal here, though, is that you're trying to, again, kind of oscillate. You're trying to go back and forth between what is a local category? How do people make sense of these things? Also, what kind of language could you use so that, say, someone in the field of Islam uh, or someone in Christianity could make sense of the things that you're talking about. Uh, how can so it's not a qu- question is broadly how do you get a broader readership, but also how do you make your work broadly salient to people outside the field? And I think that's really poignant in pilgrimage studies because I don't want the book to be a book about Pushkar solely. It is. It's a book about Pushkar. If you want to learn about Pushkar, you should read the book. Uh, but it, it, there aren't that many people who want to know about Pushkar. <laughs> so if you want to have, if you want to be part of broader conversations, you have to. Uh, make those inroads. And one of those inroads is through theory. 
uh, and through trying to, but but while also trying to be honest to your informants, your collaborators, and your friends in the field, right? Does that make sense? That, that makes um, a great deal of sense. Um, you know, the, the like, what's in it for me? Why should I care about Pushkar? I mean, not in a in a cynical way, but in a you know, why is this important? Why does this matter? Why is this more than just an intellectual curiosity about the workings of a particular place or or, or process? Like, there's more going on here than the implications of the research. And I find this to be a, a, a struggle for many colleagues. The implications of the research are much more profound and broader than they either realize or or, or express, right? There's so much more going on there that would be mm. of interest to a larger audience. Now, you know, I, I have this interesting hobby here where I, as I say, I, I speak to a black box of a room on this podcast and right. uh, there are a great number of specialists uh, who listen and there are a great number of generalists and a great number of keen undergrads and graduate students and, and continuing studies crowd and people just interested in ideas and or uh, Indian religion. Mm-hmm. And part of the space we're in now is to really uh, present the 30,000 foot view of the value of this work, right? Mm-hmm. The broad themes. Um, and so, so what are some of the broad themes? What are some of the, the key ideas? I mean, you can either go thematically or you can talk about the chapters. I mean, we'll have plenty of time to dive in as you like. Sure. Um, yeah, that's not, that's great. So I actually, I totally agree with you. It's so hard and at times very frustrating to try to um, think about the broad implica- implications of one's work. Uh, that is because it is actually just like difficult mind work, but also because there's something kind of frustrating about having to explain why someone should read something when you just think, well, you should just read it. <laughs> uh, because, and as you say, I mean, it's funny to try to think about reasons beyond intellectual curiosity to read a book, but also intellectual curiosity is a reason to read a book, right? Uh, and it doesn't need to be intellectual curiosity in terms of Pushkar, but could just be because I want to read an interesting book. So I will say that the, the broadest framing of my book in terms of why I wrote it, or maybe even why I enjoyed writing it, um, was because I was trying to write a book that people might enjoy reading. So before we even, that's to say, before we even get to the relevance in Hindu studies, um, I, I, I tried to write a book that you could sit down. I mean, it's 170 pages, I think, or something like that. I tried to write a book that you could sit down in a day, read, put down and say, I like that book. <laughs> you know, And uh, I feel like the idea of reading ethnography for pleasure is something that we need to kind of continue to push forward. Uh, and, uh, and this is not to say that I'm this kind of amazing, magical writer, but I try my very best to be accessible. I try my very best to make uh, my writing something that I enjoyed reading. I enjoyed writing rather, and someone might enjoy reading. So before we even get to like the, what is this book trying to say? I want to just talk about the, why you should read this book, right? Why effectively would a person want to read this book? And that's to say, to sit down, read a book and enjoy it. So that's, that's the first thing. Uh, This, the, more broadly, though, or I guess more, actually, actually, it's really more specifically, more specifically, the book is about Hinduism. Uh, and even more specifically about than that, it's about a particular set of Hindus. Uh, what what uh, I'm trying to work against in my book is that whereas it is a, uh, a 
book in pilgrimage studies, which is a fairly uh, large field. It's also a book that's trying to make sense of people living today and what they're living in kind of, you know, the quote unquote modern world is like. And so it's true that Pushkar is a small town. It's true that it's a, a place of pretty, uh, I wouldn't say extreme conservatism, but it is a, it is a conservative place. But it's also a place uh, that is the site of uh, increased globalization. It's also a place that sees an incredible exchange of ideas. And so what you have then is a place, a small, small place, I don't want to say in the middle of nowhere, but a conservative town that's in the middle of a desert in Rajasthan, uh, where people are also thinking in all sorts of interesting, dynamic, uh, far-reaching ways. And so the idea then is that this is a this is a book on a pilgrimage site, but just because it's a pilgrimage site doesn't mean that they're practicing, you know, a quote unquote kind of old fashioned religion. This is this is as modern as you get, uh, and that these are people who are working through what Hinduism means to them, what being a Hindu means to them uh, in real time every day, uh, and it's changing largely because of the tourism industry. So that's to say that uh, this is a book about. Hinduism today, about Hindus today, but also about uh, this interplay between religion and tourism, between religion and the economy, and what that kind of entanglement means for people on the ground. Well, there's certainly, uh, it would seem to, it, um, it probably would seem to most that there's a tension there. There's a tension at play that might be articulated in various different ways between this. Um, ancient, uh, quote-unquote, sacred site of pilgrimage that is uh, one of the few, if not the only, uh, sacred site to the creator God himself. Um, as probably most in the audience know, one of the intrigues of, um, of, the, of the Hindu pantheon is that while there's um, uh, profuse veneration for uh, Vishnu and Shiva, the preserver and the destroyer, uh, Lord Brahma uh, <laughs> has a different fate, it seems. Um, and so this is one of the few places on the planet where you have, um, you know, overt ritual puja to to Lord Brahma. So that is that itself is a that itself would make for a fascinating study in understanding how that came to be. But then there there is there are these other realities and pressures that are occurring in real time. Um, as a function of you know globalization and and the, the this burgeoning tourist industry, mm-hmm. it seems that there would you agree that then there's a fascinating tension or interplay there? Well, so it's interesting because again this this relates back to what we had talked about earlier. Uh, you know, when I got to Pushkar, and anyone asked me kind of what's your research, I would say my research is about uh, Brahma. My research is about Pushkar and Brahma. And so when I started my research, I was setting out to be kind of the Brahma scholar of the world or one of them. I don't know how many there are, um, but, uh, but I, I sought to have that be the, the kind of focus of the project. And I actually wanted to ignore globalization and tourism all the while because I thought that tourism was really annoying, right? That tourists were, I mean, I think this is a pretty common feeling that uh, tourists are annoying. Uh, please don't call me a tourist. Oh my God, I'm not a tourist. I'm something else. I'm anything else. I'm a backpacker. I'm a scholar. I'm a, a wanderer. Please don't call me a tourist. I think everyone uh, experiences that sometime or another, especially while kind of hanging around in India. Uh, 
But but it turns out that I couldn't ignore it, that ignoring it was actually uh, was intellectually dishonest. And the book couldn't actually just be about Brahma as part of the fabric of Pushkar, because so much of the fabric of Pushkar is uh, interwoven with tourism, with the tourism industry. Uh, and so, so that's to say that the first project was about kind of this uniqueness of, of uh, this abode of Brahma and uh, the various kind of ritual world that's tied up in that. And it turns out that I wanted to talk, I had to talk more about tourism, which again, in the beginning, I didn't want to talk about and thought of as this kind of negative thing. Uh, and it's then in doing more reading and thinking through these things that you come to realize that uh, this model of tourism as this kind of corrupting force is, uh, is so, I think, viscerally feels right, but also intellectually in a, in a lot of ways is wrong. And so a lot of the a lot of the literature on tourism and religion in the beginning, especially of kind of tourism studies, you you get the general sense uh, people people talk about tourism as if it has a secularizing influence on a pilgrimage site. So that tourism comes to a pilgrimage site and it stops being about God or gods. It stops being about spirituality. It starts being about consumerism. Uh, it starts being about artificiality, inauthenticity, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, on the ground, you find that's just not true, right? That in actual practice that there's, you, you see what pilgrimage looks like in Pushkar, and it's expanded vastly since tourism has come there, uh, that people still think about Pushkar with a particular kind of spiritual or devotional quality. Um, and and, it, and actually, consumerism has always been part of pilgrimage and pilgrimage networks. And so the initial reaction of most people, and in fact me, is that here is this thing, tourism, which is ruining Pushkar. When in actuality, tourism is actually just a part of Pushkar and, and part of this pilgrimage site. And so the question then is not what are the bad negative impacts on, uh, on Pushkar of tourism, but rather in what ways has tourism changed the way think, people think about the world? Um, maybe for, uh, for worse or for better, but more specifically kind of what's in, in my mind, I'm not interested in what's good or bad, but rather what's interesting. Uh, and so. I have found that tourism doesn't actually have a secularizing or corrupting influence on religion. And that's because of the simple fact that religion and economy are not these distinct separate things. These are things that have always been entangled in one way or the other. And, you know, in the book, I talk about how, you know, pick your metaphor. uh, Is religion and and economy, are these things that are... uh, tiles that are imbricated, bricks that are mortared together are these ropes, the pieces of which have been woven. Um, the metaphor I choose is one of inosculation, which no one should know anything about unless you're a botanist. Uh, and inosculation is essentially when trees grow together, when, when things, plants that appear to be different or were at one point different or seem to be different actually conjoin in particular places. So there's, again, you, I don't, think you need to pick an oscillation over anything else. But what we're dealing with here are these things that are entangled deeply, that are co-producing one another, that are mutually constitutive, these things that are not as separate as you think. Uh, And that's, I mean, that's one of the broader takeaways of the project uh, that I think, and to be frank, I don't think I'm I'm not the only person saying that. I think that uh, there is a growing field in religion and economy. Uh, where people are starting to make sense of how these things work together. And my book then is one kind of instantiation or manifestation of how this entanglement works on the ground. 
So in terms of the cross-pollination between pilgrimage and tourism. Oh, yeah, that's that's another one. Cross-pollination. There you go. <laughs> um, I, I tend to think in, in, in metaphors, uh, in, in sort of it's, it's I'm, I'm an odd duck. But yes, this is how I process. Reality. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of the cross-pollination um, between pilgrimage and tourism, um, tell us a little bit about how that specifically works with Pushcart. I mean, share some of the data, some of your findings in the book. Sure. Uh, so, so the 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 thing you find uh, the the thing you one observation you have in Pushkar, and this I think uh, really flows through most of the book, is the this language of tolerance, this language of universalism, this language of incorporation. So the idea then is that. Here you are in this pilgrimage place, and it is ostensibly for Hindus because of the fact that Brahma is a Hindu god and Pushkar is a Hindu pilgrimage site. But really, it's so much more, right? So the discourse of Pushkar being paradise, in part, is wrapped up in the idea that Pushkar is a place that welcomes all, that incorporates all, and shows the extent to which uh, certain religious truths or certain religious ways of being are, are shared by everyone. Uh, and so a lot of the rhetoric in Pushkar involves people coming together, people being the same, people sharing in truths together. Uh, and so the, the first chapter of the book talks about Sanat and Dharm, which is otherwise kind of has been rendered as the eternal religion. Uh, what I find interesting about the rhetoric of Sanat and Dharm in Pushkar is that it's it's not necessarily different than Hinduism. People often think of Sanatan Dharma as just a particular way of uh, saying Hindu. Uh, in some cases, it's it's conservative. In some ways, it's even kind of right wing. In this case, it's it's really meant to be universalizing. And so, the eternal religion is not just Hinduism. It's the broader truths that the broader truths of Hinduism that incorporate all of these other religions. And so people would, when I would ask people about Sanatana Dharma, whether it's different than Hinduism, in most people would say, no, it's not different, but um, it has a different focus or a different kind of effective orientation or a different attitude. So the idea then is that it's not just Hinduism, it's a Hinduism that specifically looks outward, a Hinduism that looks to bring people together, a Hinduism uh, that tries to create a brotherhood, you know, or a sisterhood, or a kind of family, a family relation of people across the world. So that, that's the first example in, in the book. But you have all of these examples of, uh, there's this, uh, there's this thing called the spiritual walk uh, that people do around the Campbell Fair, uh, around the annual Campbell Fair in Pushkar. Uh, and the rhetoric of the spiritual walk is that, you know, it's this this colorful walk, this colorful march where people of all colors, the colors of the world come together uh, in this sharing of the spiritual. So it's something more than the dogmatic or the specific. Uh, it's more than just a way of expressing Hinduism or a way of expressing Christianity or Islam. It's a way of expressing expressing the broader spiritual qualities of all religions. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of the book actually is about what I call uh, the phrase factory. And the, the phrase factory, of course, is not like a place where they make phrases, but rather I talk about it as a kind of compulsion, right? It's a, 
it's an urge on the part of people in Pushkar to deploy particular idioms. Uh, so people in Pushkar have this huge kind of constellation or collection of idioms that they use to describe things around them. Uh, and a lot of these idioms involve different ideas of sharing. So different ideas of, of being one with people, of being, you know, quote unquote, same, same, but different. That's one of them. Uh, and so there, the world of Pushkar is just kind of filled with these idioms of belonging. And, uh, and my argument then is that these idioms of belonging exist because of the tourism industry. They're driven by the tourism industry, but also interestingly, that they are spoken again and again to the extent that they become reality. So you have these uh, young, young, uh, in this case, often young men who I spoke with a lot, these young priests and tour guides in their 20s and 30s uh, who are kind of deploying these phrases over and over and over again, who say same, same, but different, same, same, but different, same, same, but different. And what you find then is that these, these phrases may at one point have been cooked up because it seemed good for the economy. It seemed like a good idea to create this atmosphere of sharing, but also that they've now been said for 20 years. Uh, and so these young 20-somethings deploy these phrases, but also my argument is that they believe these phrases, that they've become reality. Whether they were you know, kind of inspired by the economy or not is, is kind of arbitrary to the simple fact that they now believe that Pushkar is this uh, this this node, the center of the globalized world. It's this place for people of the world to come together uh, and to share in uh, kind of to share in, in brotherhood, to share in the sense of togetherness. Yeah, that's um, a really interesting interplay. So you know, the the arrival of a guest is perhaps the uh, um, is the is the impetus or occasion uh, to be or to learn to be welcoming, mm-hmm. and yet. Uh, once a guest has left, you're already welcoming for the next one. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> um, that's really interesting. Uh, tell us about the priests. What were the priests like in your experience? Uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, as, as a, uh, the, the book is not supposed to be about priests, but in many ways it is, right? Insofar as I started the project, or when I knew what this project was supposed to be about, it was about kind of this this rhetoric, this discourse of Pushkar being paradise and the fact that this rhetoric is pushed forward, is put forward uh, more than anything else by priests and tour guides who are really the people who are working in the access of pilgrimage and tourism. In addition to them, of course, you've got people who are running camel safaris, restaurateurs, hotel owners, etc., people in the public sphere. But that uh, really there are the priests and the tour guides who are driving this rhetoric or who are embodying this rhetoric on a day to day basis. Uh, and what you find is that the vast majority of them, well, all of the priests and the vast majority of tour guides are Brahmins. Uh, and uh, I wouldn't say vast majority, but the majority of them are actually a, are Pottershire Brahmins or a particular subset of Brahmins, the kind of most uh, power wielding, most powerful a subset of Brahmins, in fact, the most powerful kind of community of people in Pushkar. So basically the deal here is that these, these, these Brahmins are brought up to uh, either perform pujas on the lake, perform rituals on uh, the sacred lake of Pushkaraj, uh, or to kind of oversee their temples in town. What happens though, at some point or another, 
is that a number of them get wrapped up in the tourism industry in one way or another. Either they uh, they start to do pujas specifically for uh, tourists or pilgrims who uh, of a particular kind of uh, class, um, or that they get wrapped up fully in the tourism industry so to the extent that they're not even just performing pujas, they're actually giving tours to people. Uh, and so a huge facet of life in Pushkar for these uh, Brahmin tour guides is that they're, they're essentially looking for pilgrims and tourists. They're looking for people uh, for whom they can kind of render these services, which at the end inevitably involves a puja at the lake, but also usually involves a kind of tour throughout town uh, and a visit to the Brahma temple. Now, one of the, one of the kind of most interesting observations I made, or I guess one of the most surprising things I I observed well while in Pushkar, especially in the beginning, was that, uh, I, like I said before, I thought I was going to be writing about the Brahma temple. I thought I was going to be talking about Brahma. Uh, but it, it turns out that uh, most people don't care about the Brahma temple all that much. Uh, it's definitely an important place of pilgrimage. Uh, it's definitely a place that everyone wants to visit at some point or another. Uh, but the Brahmins, uh, and, and broadly the people in Pushkar, don't think about the Brahma temple all too much. They definitely don't go every day uh, if it doesn't involve their work. Uh, and they're not all too concerned about it. The, the the lake is what's most important. And so could you tell us more about this idea of paradise? You know, why is Pushkar understood as paradise? Yeah, this is a, it's a, I mean, it's a really important question because it in itself is kind of contested. Uh, you know, people are free to say, and we'll, we'll say with great ease that Pushkar is paradise, that it's a great place. Um, but it's also difficult to find how people define paradise or what exactly constitutes paradise for them. So for people in Pushkar, that's to say for locals, uh, Pushkar is paradise because it is, uh, as I said before, it's the abode of Brahma. Uh, it was consecrated by Brahma, so it has a certain type of sacredness. Uh, the lake itself has these purifying qualities uh, because of the fact that uh, heaven essentially descends into Pushkar for uh for essentially the period of time of the camel fair every year. So in, in, for a small period of time, it's the actual, it is actually heaven. Um, but for most of the year, it's still paradisical in some way or another. So again, it's, it's, there are these kind of mythological ties. It's also because of the fact that particular rituals are performed there. So, uh, you know, the Brahmins uh, propitiate the gods. They render particular kind of puja services for people on the lake. Um, people do lots of recitations, and so it's believed that these powerful and positive vibrations are kind of traveling across the ether, making Pushkar a better place. And so f- because for, for Brahmins, a lot of it is because of uh, the kind of ritual repertoire, because of the kind of uh, mythological valence. Uh, but for a lot of, for the tourists who come, there are different reasons. And this is where some of the some of the kind of uh, scraps happen in Pushkar, where basically you have these tourists who are coming because it's small town India. Uh, they want to go to Pushkar, enjoy a banana pancake, smoke some hash, and do some yoga. Uh, and they don't want to be bothered by Brahmins who want to perform pujas for them. But of course, the Brahmins think that they're performing pujas for the good of making Pushkar paradise. And so uh, the, the paradisical nature of, of Pushkar is, in fact, is contested. And it's, it's part of the reason why there is, at times, a breakdown between uh, tourists and kind of specifically backpackers and hippie tourists and uh, the Brahmin community there. 
So there's an interesting, um, maybe even play there between paradise in a spiritual, theological, relig uh, religious uh, ritual, paradise in, in, in sort of a vibrational sense, and then paradise in an aesthetic sense, the way in which one may uh, venture into a Caribbean paradise. Sure, and, and there's this idea here. I mean, my last chapter is about uh, is about vibrations, right? It's about it's about shanti and peace and pushkar. Uh, and what I found, too, is that in the same way that there are many different definitions of paradise or many different ways of understanding paradise, there are many different ways of understanding peacefulness. And so everyone talks about Pushkar as being a place of peace. Um, and in some cases, it's because of the fact that it's actually a place of kind of peace and quiet. But more often than not, it's actually peaceful because of these positive vibrations that are that are uh, sent through the ether by way of, of recitation. So yeah, you have this, is it actually quiet and peaceful? Well, no, in a lot of cases, Pushkar is actually a very loud place. It's a place with honking horns and kind of trance music and all, and bells and uh, motorcycles and all sorts of just kind of normal everyday noise, but it's peaceful in a, in a different sense, right? What surprised you most about your research in Pushkar? Uh, it's a good question. I guess I think I think as I'd said before, part of the, the biggest surprise for me was that uh, people tend not to care about the Brahma Temple. That I went to Pushkar thinking that my project was going to be about about Brahma and Pushkar and his kind of place in the Hindu pantheon broadly. Uh, and it, and I started talking to people about Brahma and the Brahma temple, and they were kind of like, yeah, I mean, Brahma's important insofar as uh, he he kind of sanctified this place, uh, insofar as this is his abode, but no one really cares about the temple. And I was so surprised when people would, I mean, quite literally and casually and explicitly say, no one cares about the temple. Um, and I even remember a, a sadhu there, one of the sadhus who actually works at the Brahma temple telling me, you know, uh, the, the, the temple has no history. And I was like, well, no, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty old. <laughs> it has a substantial history. And, and he was like, no, what I mean is that it doesn't really matter uh, in the broader scheme of things that, yeah, it's an ancient temple, but compared to the lake, which has been here since time immemorial, you know, the fact that Pushkar was created by the creator God. And so in thinking about things in the, the real long durée in terms of the real, uh, the expanse of history, then uh, Pushkar's the Brahma temple rather has no real historical significance. I think that was the, the biggest surprise for me. It kind of changed my project fundamentally. Well, that's a, I mean, there's, a, <laughs> I'm obviously biased because of my interests, but that is utterly fascinating to me <laughs> that you have a, a sadhu, a holy man, somebody with some spiritual and or religious authority saying, look, this, 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 Yes, this may be the only consecrated Murti of Brahma in the universe, uh, um, but it's it's really not of significance. Um, it's the space here. It's the sacred space. It's the that's, lake. That's, it's, it's something. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And and mind you that this is not just a casual sadhu hanging out kind of uh, by a local restaurant. This is a sadhu who works in the Brahma temple, whose livelihood in part, I mean, the fact that he's able to that, that he lives where he lives, that he eats where he eats is because of the infrastructure of the Brahma temple itself. And so uh, it's a place that has some serious significance for him. I mean, material significance for him, but even still, it doesn't have a history, right? So I realize this, this is away from the heart of your project, but you know, now I'm curious, are the people, uh, the Hindus, let's say, who live in Pushkar, these mm -hmm. 20,000 folks, would they then ha be worshipping uh, Jiva or Vishnu, the goddess, or some such thing or what is that like 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're they're just uh, they go where they want. I mean, and there are some people. A very very close uh, friend and informant was a person who oversaw a Ganesh temple, and so for him, you know, everything was Ganesh all the time, and uh, and he would still go to other temples when it seemed salient or when there might be a festival, and he'd go to the Brahma temple here and there. But you know, I think it was my biggest surprise to hear that. You know, I think when I got there, I was just kind of like, well, everyone must go to the Brahma temple once a day. <laughs> Guys, like I haven't been there for two months, you know. Um, so they, people will go, but not everyone goes regularly, and yeah, people will. If you're gonna, if you want to worship Ganesh or Vishnu or Shiv or whatever, then that's uh, yeah, that's your prerogative. Um, and so you've got people from all sorts of walks of life. And whenever I, I don't know how this actually works in terms of sectarian identity, but people in Pushkar tend not to be sectarian. Uh, and so I ask people, you know, like who is your preferred god, or are you from a particular sect, or how do you think about these things in terms of kind of sampradai or sectarian tradition broadly. And their answer is always like, no, 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 I'm just like, I do what I, I do what I do and I do what I want. And uh, my family happens to like Vish, uh, happens like Shiva or Vishnu. And so I go to that temple, uh, but but that's it. It's all about kind of um, personal or familial dispositions. Uh, and they're not they're not all too worried about uh, about sectarian tradition. Um, I tend not to bring in other scholarship, uh, typically so we can focus on uh, the work at hand. Um, mm in its broad themes. But imagine you have read Jack Holly's recently, uh, recently published work on Vrindavan. Have you? Yeah, I've, well, I've read parts of it. I read the intro before it was the intro. Um, I'm not sure actually how it's changed, but, uh, but yeah, so Jack Holly is, uh, was my advisor in graduate school. And so I would say I know his work pretty intimately. Um, I haven't, I definitely haven't read the entirety of the Krishna book, but, um, or the Vrindavan book, I should say. Uh, but I w- I remember when uh, he told me he was working on it that I um I had some kind of fear, you know. I mean, I, to be to be totally honest, I had like a visceral sense, like, oh my god, here's this incredibly brilliant senior scholar who also happens to be my advisor, who's writing this amazing thing about Brindavan while I'm writing this thing about Pushkar. Uh, what's that mean? But I actually now that they're both out uh, around the same time, I think they're actually really complementary. Uh, and and what they do is deal with the stuff in a very very different way. Um, Jack is someone who puts, uh, who has taken this incredible wealth of knowledge and this huge time frame into thinking through the changes of Brindavan. Uh, whereas I'm less interested in change and more interested in kind of sense making. So I'm interested in how people make sense of the world around them in the present. Now, whether that's in, because of intellectual interest or because of the simple fact that I haven't been in Pushkar for you know thirty or forty years, I, I don't really know. Um, but 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 yeah, our, our our orientations I think are are different in that sense. Well, it's it's interesting, you know. Uh, prior prior to this podcast, I didn't realize. Uh, that Jack Hawley uh, was your advisor, uh, but it's it's interesting that to to look at both of um, these books in close succession, they just happen to line up for this podcast um, within weeks of each other, mm. um, because they're um, it's very complex the relationship. They're they're same but different, right? <laughs> yeah, sure, that's great. <laughs> they're, yeah, I love they're, it. They're they're they're, they're similar. Uh, they're similar insofar as they look at these. Uh, hugely popular, famous sites of pilgrimage that are deeply impacted by the modern world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, tourism, uh, globalization, etc. 
and yet they take so such very different approaches, both in terms of historical versus you know what's the, taking the temperature right now mm-hmm. of, of life in Pushkar and, and, and sort of lived understandings in this moment that we're, we're in. Um, uh, very different moods, right? So they're they're very different works, and I think uh, I would use the same word that you use. They're really complementary. They really are. Well, that, well, that, that will help my that will help my book sales. So thank you, Raj. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> so just so you all know out there, um, I get a huge cut. I get a huge check from each uh, interviewee. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if you if if you want to buy if you want to buy Jack Holly's book, make sure you also buy Drew Thomas's book. It's very complimentary, says Raj. Thank you. <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't have said it better than myself. Um, uh, I appreciate it. <laughs> yes. So for the record, <laughs> this position <laughs> is entirely a service position. One may think I have nothing to do but read these books because of the rate of publication, but <laughs> I do. <laughs> but I enjoy I enjoy um, good material and I enjoy rendering it accessible to a broader audience. And I really think it's important that we promote what we do. Um, mm. And we're not always great at promoting our own stuff, so you need, you need sort of a uh, an agent <laughs> like myself yeah, to no, come no, along. I, I, I would say I'm da- I would say I'm downright bad at promoting, and so no, I, I really do appreciate those. It's, it's great. well, I love these. Uh, you know, I I, I understand them, but I, I you know, so every time I, I get a, a, a almost every time I get notification of a book through a, a listserv or some such thing, there's almost always an sorry for the self-promotion mm-hmm. um why are you apologizing and you're not promoting yourself you're promoting the book this is valuable this is de- uh, uh, please forgive me for providing you with this value I'm like my goodness <laughs> <laughs> what on earth this yeah. is <laughs> anyhow uh this is common at the academy for sure yeah. um but then you have shameless people like me who'll just like you know promote everyone's work <laughs> that's great we need we need you it's great <laughs> exactly um yeah, oh, really well, I, I did want to say I did want to say one thing, which is that yeah, I think that um, I do think my work and Jack's work is is complementary, and I think a lot of it has to do. I mean, a lot of, first of all, a lot of it has to do with that. My most formative uh, kind of education happened alongside him and through him. Uh, but it, but it's true that that we have different tacks on it, right? And a lot of his thinking, I think he'd be, I think he would be explicit about the fact that he's he thinks about Vrindavan in crisis. Um, and it's a, these are changes that in many ways are kind of negative. And, and my book is about change, but it's, it's not so much about the differences, uh, of what's happened or what the past looked like, but rather how people are dealing with the present. Uh, and, and I, again, that's not to take away from anything. I don't have the experience to really be able to have that analysis that Jack has. Um, but in that sense, then I think that we have, uh, different orientations. I also think we have different theoretical orientations insofar as I am more interested in, uh, in bringing in other thinkers, other outside thinkers, uh, other theoretical thinkers, and his wealth of knowledge of uh, Hindu traditions uh, in terms of uh, textuality and, his, and, and in terms of history are much, much more substantial than mine. Certainly. Very well said. Um, so I th- we talked about this a little earlier, but just to give readers a sense, I mean, before say you say in the introductory chapter, before mm-hmm. we get the the scholarly narrative, you know, um, we have these lovely vignettes, these snippets, um, these these peepholes into the into the human story. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, this is how the the book starts off. I think one of five such excerpts starts or, or reads: "I descended the broad marble stairs towards the lake. 
It was a bright and cool morning, the sky an unbroken blue. A teenager named Vishnu sat on a huge metal trunk selling birdseed by the bowlful. Close to the water's edge, a few pilgrims removed their sandals and tossed seed to a flock of pigeons. There were nearly a hundred of the birds, all flapping and strutting about in the morning's meal. Trying to strike up a conversation, I told Vishnu that where I was from, in the United States, pigeons are usually considered a nuisance. He countered saying, well, in future, in a future life, I would like to be a pigeon in Pushkar. But why? His answer, because Pushkar is heaven. <laughs> it's, it's just so rich. It's just, I, I just love the, 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 obviously you're narrating or curating clearly, right? Mm-hmm. But I just love that there's so much, you know, raw fabric left for us to kind of do with it as we will in this book. Um, Thanks. Just to yeah, give you folks sure. texture into the into the storytelling of 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 this work. Um, was there anything else you wanted us to you hope to we'd explore or touch on um, regarding the book? No, I'm good. <laughs> read read the <laughs> read the book. Uh, you know, no, I mean, I, I think, uh, it, it, like I said, um, it's a book that I actually genuinely enjoyed writing. Uh, which I think hopefully might translate into someone actually enjoying reading it. I don't know if that's true or not, but I th- I feel like uh, if there is some pleasure in the doing, then there might be some pleasure in the kind of receiving of that information. Definitely, it's 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 a fluid, accessible style. It's yeah. enjoyable for sure. Thanks. So, um, very quickly, what are you uh, what are you working on now? What are you researching? Right. So I'm actually, my next project is one that is uh, not located in India really at all, or I should say it's, it's, lo- it's, some of it is located in India, but mostly I'm now taking this idea of kind of global thinking, uh, global Hinduism and thinking about it kind of more uh, in terms of interactions between Hindu folks or Hindu, Hindu ideas uh, and, uh, and spiritual seekers largely from the United States. So Right now, it's kind of uh, it's titled on the margins of Hindu and hippie, although I think it's probably going to change. But the idea here is that I'm looking at these different kind of locations, these geographic, ritual, conceptual locations where Hindu ideas intersect with uh, kind of spiritual seeking and yoga practitioners. Uh, And a, a friend of mine described my work, this new work, as kind of yoga adjacent insofar as there's all this great work uh, being done in the field of yoga studies right now, great historical work, great ethnographic work. Uh, and so I'm, what I'm trying to do is take all of this, all of these people uh, who do yoga, more often than not do yoga, who also have all of these other uh, rituals, uh, beliefs, uh, who do all this other stuff and think all these other things that aren't actually directly related to yoga, but to other stuff that might be labeled Hindu. Uh, and so the project is, again, it's just starting. I've just started in the past few years, a lot of it born out of the fact that here I now live in San Diego uh, and have a, have a five-year-old daughter who uh, doesn't, you know, I, I mean, basically who's, who's here and I can't get too much time in India. So I've found that there's all this great stuff going on in Southern California with all these really interesting folk. Uh, and so, you know, th- there's different facets of the project right now. Uh, there's a, a hopeful chapter on barefoot walking and what it means for both pilgrims in India and uh, kind of hippies in the United, United States to be walking barefoot. Uh, there is a chapter somewhere on autobiographies of uh, 
white sadhus who have uh, traveled to India and, and decide to stay there or spend significant times there. Uh, and the more recent work that I'm working on right now uh, is about spiritual seekers in San Diego and in Southern California who use murtis, who use images of, uh, of Hindu deities for their own spiritual practices, and specifically who use murtis as archetypes for, uh, they think about them in terms of Jungian archetypes uh, for developing the kind of self-cultivation of particular characteristics inside themselves. So instead of looking at Hanuman uh, as, as Hanuman as Hanuman, they would look at Hanuman as a manifestation of devotion that they can kind of, that they can cultivate within themselves. Uh, so it's, it's really fun work. It's interesting. It takes me further afield from Pushkar, but also ties in quite explicitly because it's about how these ideas travel across the globe. Um, we definitely need to talk. Um, we, uh, I have a wealth of, uh, a wealth of experiences with practitioners uh, in Toronto I was much more active mm. in the yoga circuit, say around 2010, about 10 years ago. Mm. 2010, yeah, 2010 to 2013-ish. Um, uh, and uh, I saw quite a bit of that. So I have tons of stories that I can share. Love to hear it. Um, Love to hear it. Yeah, yeah, it should, should be interesting. Have you had a chance to look at Inhaling Spirit uh, by uh, Anya Foxen? Uh, so Anya is a friend, uh, and so I read her intro and first few chapters before it was actually published. So I don't know. Um, so I yes, I've read it in some instantiation, but not in the current form. Very and it's cool. and That's and her her work is completely amazing, and everyone should read Anya Foxen. <laughs> there's lots of there's lots of interesting work um, being done on yoga and in the philosophy for lack of a better umbrella. Um, Absolutely. And I think, uh, I think Anya's work is showing these really interesting kind of historical genealogies. Uh, and I'm, and a lot of my work is about kind of how this stuff is lived today on the ground, you know? Very cool. Very cool. Okay. <laughs> We've taken enough of your time for one day. Um, and so perhaps we'll close. Um, Thank you very much for joining us. On the it was a, it was a real pleasure. It was a real pleasure, Raj. Thank you so much. It was really fun. Great. I'll expect your check in the mail again. <laughs> Great. Yeah, 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 for sure. <laughs> um, so, you know, the, the phrase guest is God, I'll close with this, with this thought. It's um, a very common um, dictum proverb. It's sort of in, in Indic culture. Um, the sentiment obviously is not unique to Indian culture, but but literally the guest is God. You know, sure. mother's God, the father's God, the teacher's God, the guest is God. I had a um, someone I approached to do a podcast, and he was concerned because you know my methodological approach was quite different from his. And I said to him, like, um, no, 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 I'm not here. I'm not here to grill you. You were mm-hmm. my guest, and I said to him, the guest is God. This is about <laughs> this is about uh, uh, catering to and showcasing the, the fine folks I have on the on the podcast. So we've been speaking, uh, our guest today has been Drew Thomas's on his OUP 2019 publication, Guest as God, Pilgrimage, Tourism, and Making Paradise in India. It's a work specifically, of course, on Pushka. Until next time, uh, keep reading, keep listening, stay safe. Thank you.